Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well this morning. If you haven't already, uh, let me invite you to take a hold of your Bible and open it to the passage our friend Nathan just read. Seems like everyone already had done that. I was really encouraged looking out as Nathan was reading that everyone had their Bible open reading it. That encourages me to see uh, you all longing to hear from God's Word and excited for it. I'm excited to preach the gospel this morning. Uh, I think it's a joy and privilege to preach the gospel uh, with and to the Mountain Church. Uh, I need to hear the gospel, I think, just as much. Uh, so I'm prone every week to put my performance and my identity and my worth and how well I perceive people liking the sermon. So man, I need to hear the gospel this morning. Uh, this morning's passage is one that uh, I think if you could summarize the Bible, this would be a, a great verse to do that. All right, if someone came up to you and said, what is the Bible all about? I think you could point to John 3.16 and give a great summary of what it is. Right, someone's at the library. They're, I guess you can have Bibles at the library. Someone pulls a Bible off the shelf and says, hey, what's this about? What would you say? It's a book of rules. Better try hard to do them. This, this, this is a book about stories to emulate, or heroes to emulate. No, it's, it's a story of God's love, giving his son, that whoever believes could have eternal life. Uh, now, when I was in high school, uh, I went to an all-guys Catholic school. There was a reality that for many students, we didn't like reading uh, ancient Greek mythology or 17th century British literature um, or any other book that someone handed to us to read. So there's this thing called spark notes. You guys know what spark notes are? <laughs> cliff notes. Spark notes is a different thing? Okay. I'm thinking of cliff notes. Okay. Different companies, same idea. The idea is, instead of reading the whole book, you can go to a website and someone lays out the plot, the main themes, the characters. So really, without even reading the book, you could write some sort of a paper on it just by looking at these Cliff or Spark Notes, whatever brand you went to, I guess, online. I think I went to Cliff Notes. What we find in this passage this morning is like if John did a summary of, of Cliff Notes on the Bible. Now, maybe you're unfamiliar with John 3.16, uh, but maybe you, you grew up in the church, and to hear a sermon or a, a passage, like you could just start the phrase, for God so loved, and you could finish the sentence. Right, I would, I, if I was a betting man, I would say that if you were to interview most people that had grown up in church or are in church, John 3.16 would probably be one of those verses that if you had to say, do you have any verses memorized, this would probably be one of them. This, is ver this verse is a very popular verse when it comes to Christian faith. There was a, uh, an athlete, Heisman Award winner, quarterback named Tim Tebow. He had John 3.16 put on his eye black here. Uh, the, the great uh, evangelist and gospel preacher Billy Graham this was his favorite Bible verse, John 3.16. Said he, he loved, it didn't matter what crusade he was on, he was going to preach on John 3.16 and was probably going to be one of his first nights he did John 3.16. Uh, I've loved studying this passage this week. I, I thought I knew what John 3.16 was about this week before coming into it, so I'm excited to share what I've learned. And maybe, uh, maybe you're here this morning and you did grow up in church, you do know John 3.16, and even thinking about it, you're like, oh, okay, I know this one, Right? There's this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. I think that can very much be the case uh, when it comes to, to popular or famous Bible verses. We think we know what they're about, but if, if someone asked you, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Or what is Jesus talking about here with eternal life? 
would you know what they're, would you know what John is talking about here? I think that's what I want to highlight and look at this morning is what does it really mean to believe? And what is the reward? What is eternal life? I think some of us can hear this, uh, John 3.16, like, like my wife does this sometimes. Uh, there's a, an old song from high school that'll come on on the radio or some sort of throwback, and she'll just start singing along the words. Like It just comes back to her, like she just listened to it. And then you think, do you really know what you're singing? Do you know what the lyrics are? Just that kind of reality. You grew up on something or you're so familiar with it that you really don't even know what it means. So my hope this morning is to look at this passage, John 3, 16 through 21, and help us understand what does it really mean to help us to see the beauty of what believing in Jesus is, help you to see the gospel more clearly, and love Jesus for it, right? So let's look at our text, John 3, starting in verse 16. And let's look at what it says, I think, important to remember how it's fit into the context. Four. So it starts with four. Now, four is important because it connects... It's used to indicate uh, the place something or something is going to or towards. In other words, it's talking about the reason, our connection from something. So it says for. Now that connects back to verses 14 and 15 of what we looked at last week, where it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And last week we looked at John 3, 1 through 15, where Jesus has this interaction with a, a famous prominent religious figure named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was kind of a religious elite. He would have had a lot of power, man of influence. And last week we talked about the idea that Nicodemus probably wouldn't have been taught his whole life and even taught others as a teacher uh, of the law that salvation or being with God, entering the kingdom, happened through works of the law. It happened through obedience, making yourself right with God in that way. It had to come from upright moral character or being an ethnic Jew. And Jesus annihilates that, that thought, that argument, by essentially saying, it's not about what you do or where you've come from, your status, your ethnic heritage. You must be born again. Everyone. And the point of the illustration is that you can't do it in yourself. I think that's the reason that John or Jesus uses an illustration like this. Uh, for example, think about your role in your own birth. What did you do? Nothing. Your mom pushed you out, and you were there. Right? You didn't learn classes on the womb on uh, escaping the womb techniques, right? That wasn't a thing. You were born. And Jesus is saying here, you can't, you don't do anything. Something that is it's a work of God. It's not about what you do or the works or your, your knowledge, your status. It's a grace of God, and the grace empowers us to simply receive and to look to Jesus. Like, they look, like the Israelites looked at the serpent in the wilderness, anyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And that phrase, whoever believes, is what connects with verse 16. In other words, how can anyone believe? Why can anyone believe? What's the reason? How is it possible for someone, anyone, to have eternal life? For God so loved the world. Now, we don't know in this passage, these are, in fact, the words of Jesus. Has he still talking to Nicodemus? Or this is something that, that was a teaching of Jesus that John later added in. The point being, if this was addressed to Nicodemus, this would have rocked another thing that would have rocked his world. Because for the Jews, the love of God was only talked about for the Jews. There was covenant love that God had for his people, the Jews. 
this, this idea of God loving the world would have been scandalous or astounding to a Jew in the Old Testament because God's love described and talked about only for the Israelite people. But here Jesus is saying, God so loved the world. This is why anyone can look to Jesus and have eternal life. This is why anyone, not just Jews, can look to Jesus and have eternal life because God loves the world. D.A. Carson in his commentary writes about this. God loved the world not because the world is lovable or because we loved God first. God's love is amazing not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. God's love is unselfish, costly, and praiseworthy. The word there in the Greek is the word cosmos. God loved the world. Now, John has already talked a little bit about what this world is in chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So this world is ignorant to Jesus. Later in John 7, 7, Jesus will later say to his disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the works of the world are evil, ignorant of Jesus. This is the world. This is out of whoever can believe and have eternal life. This world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world is the, the fallen created order, rebelling against God. God loved this world that he gave his only son that whoever believed could have eternal life. And, and notice, I love this, this phrase, God so loved the world that he gave, led to a specific action. It doesn't say God so loved the world, he wrote a poem. He had a nice thought about the world. No, it leads to action. God gave. This is what love does. When you love someone, you give yourself to them. You give time and money and affection and work to them. Funny enough, there's a parallel, I think, in, in John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See that? Love is not simply a feeling. It leads to action. Love is action. It's described as an action. God loved the world that he gave his son to be the substitutionary sacrifice, the lamb of God. He gave up his son to die, to cleanse the world from their wickedness, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. It continues in verse 17. For God did not send his world, son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, this is probably not a couple of verses that are as memorized as John 3.16, right? They're not as popular. But I think having an understanding of what this means makes 16 even that much more significant and amazing. Why does God not send Jesus to the world to condemn it? Because it's already condemned, right? The sentence has already been issued. It's not as if you, you're born in the world in a neutral state and you do good and bad and God will somehow at the end of your life weigh those. Okay, well, did some bad things, did some good things, but the good outweighs the bad and then pronounces the sentence. That's not what John's talking about. The sentence has been issued, condemned. You enter the world, condemned. That's how it works. In fact, at the end of the gospel, according to John, uh, John 3, verse 36, it says it this way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, that's how it's connected to condemned. It's connected to perishing. It's under a sentence of guilt and wrath. But whoever believes in Jesus is free from the condemnation. There is no condemnation. They don't have that sentence of guilty pronounced over them. And this is interesting here because what, what condemns you is not what you do. It's what you didn't do. Believe. Unless you believe, you can have the mortality, the goodness, the, the right standing, the righteousness of someone like the Pope and still perish. If you believe, you can be the worst sinner and still be pardoned. And this is the judgment, verse 19. In other words, this is the cause for the indictment or the test by which people are judged, the basis of the sentence. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works, works should be exposed. John is saying there's two categories, those who believe and those who don't. It's not a neutral ground. There's not a, some believing and throw a little bit of Jesus in here, throw a little bit of something else, kind of cover my bases. There's those who don't believe and those who do believe. Those who come to Jesus, those who love the darkness. Those who come to the light and those who don't. They don't come to light because they love darkness. They don't want their works exposed. They refuse to come to Jesus for fear their sins will be exposed. But verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, what, see how he's further differentiating that, those two categories? Those who come to the light and those who hate the light. And, and notice, again, there's not a group of people that are in the dusk or in the dawn. It's light or darkness. Look closely at, though, at, at those who come to the light. Where do their good and their true works come from? What's the source of doing what is true? It says there, their works have been carried out in God. Another way of saying that is accomplished by God, through God, because of God. God is the source. Jesus already talked about earlier in 1 through 15 that God is the author, the initiator of the new birth. Without him doing anything, there's nothing that's going to happen. But John is continuing to saying that, that he not only saves, but he sustains. He continues to empower. In other words, you can't, you can't do these good things without divine help from him. There's no room for boasting or pride or self-righteousness. And again, now notice a different connection of believing and doing. It says, Whatever, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Those who believe come to the light. Those who come to the light are those who do what is true. John is saying that belief is not merely a simple affirmation of the facts. R.C. Sproul said that belief is not only right, it doesn't only include right thought, but right practice, right action. Belief in Jesus leads to obedience to Jesus. Like thunder follows lightning, those who do what is true show where their true belief stands in Jesus. So if you look at that question, what does the text say, as we think to make sense of this passage and, and use those questions as a framework, we could summarize the passage, just, you could say this, the world, the, the great mass of people who are in rebellion to God are condemned. This is language of the courtroom setting, the sentence has been given, Guilty. We have all done God infinite wrong, yet the people in the world don't come to Jesus, do so because they love darkness. 
They don't want to come to the light. They're, they have fear of being exposed. But since God is loving and merciful, he sent his son. He gave his only son, the unique son of God, that whoever believes would not remain condemned, but live. He would escape that condemnation. And while they once hated God and they loved darkness, they would be transformed now to doing what is true. And their works would be clearly seen that these works have been done because of God, because of his grace, because of his power. They are different. They've turned from evil works to good works, right? I think we could summarize. What does the text say in, in that way? What does the text mean? And, and again, I want to look at what does John mean by believe? And what does John mean by eternal life? I grew up in the church, and I, I've heard this verse many times. And I've previously thought that this verse simply means that you believe that Jesus is true. And when you believe that Jesus is true, or he existed, then you get eternal life, which looks something like living in a cloud-like place forever where you're surrounded by babies and diapers playing harps. Didn't really interest me. But I learned that hell is a bad place, didn't really want to go there, so I wanted this eternal life. I wanted to live forever. John is saying much more than that. I think if you simply believe that, you, you might be even self-deceived by what, John is, what he lays out in this passage. The crux of this passage seems to be on this idea of belief. Right? It, it does say for God to love the world, but really the crux is the belief. That's what separates the two different people. That's how you can receive eternal life. And we must ask ourselves, if this belief is so important, what does it mean to believe? The author of John wrote this, in fact, that was the very purpose of the gospel account, John 20, 30 through 31. We've, we've referenced this passage a lot as we've looked at the gospel according to John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book, belief. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And why doesn't everyone believe? And what is the reward for the belief? It says in verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I think at the beginning of, of the Gospel according to John, John clues us into what this believing means. It says in, in chapter 1, verse 12, and we can look at the context starting in verse 9. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. See the connection there? All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So believing is connected to receiving. When John says in, in verse, chapter 3, verse 18, believed in the name of the only Son of God, it's, this is an idea of the name in this, in this context. The name is a reference to all of, that, all of who that person is, their character, their attributes, all of who they are. This is why Jesus told his disciples to pray in his name. Not because when you say in Jesus' name, it's kind of a magical formula to a prayer that somehow makes God hear them better. That's not what praying in Jesus' name means. It means because of Jesus. Because of who he is, his accomplishment, you can talk to God. You have access to the Father. That's what praying in the name of Jesus means. When it says, believe in the name of Jesus, it's saying, believe in all of who he is and all that he has done. 
That's what believing in the name of Jesus means. So when you say you believe in Jesus, it means you believe in all of who he is and all that he has done. When you say you believe in Jesus, you're saying you receive all of who he is and all he has done. You don't believe him or receive him for what you think he is or what you want him to be. You receive him for who he says he is, what he is. For example, if you asked a child if they believe in Santa, said, yeah, he's a young boy with a red beard and he rides around on a yellow pony and he puts money under children's pillows if they lose their tooth. You would say, I don't know who taught you about Santa, but that is not Santa. I don't know who that is. It's just a combination of some weird things. Did you live on a rock? You know, like, that's not Santa. Similarly, if you say, I believe in Jesus, we have to root that identity and, and who that is based on who he said he is, not who we make him up to be. What does God's word say about Jesus? We want to believe in that. That's what believing in Jesus means. Now, notice what verse 16 doesn't say. Whoever believes in Jesus can have eternal life. I've never noticed this before in this passage, but this is awesome. It doesn't say whoever believes in the, in the Son can have eternal life. It doesn't say whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. He says whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. The word in the Greek is present, active. I mean, you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. It's not something you got to wait for. You have it. And when John uses this word eternal life, he's not simply referring to life after death. This eternal life John is talking about is not simply meaning that you're going to live forever. Believers and non-believers both will live forever. That's what the, the teaching of the Bible says. Just in different, they're going to get what they love. The soul, this immaterial part of who we are being created in the image of God, that, that part lives forever. You're eternal beings. So having eternal life does not mean that you're just going to live forever. And looking at the idea that it starts in the present, it's something that starts now. And so what I found this week in my studies, for John, eternal life is a quality of life more than it is a quantity of life. Jesus says in John, 10, John chapter 10, I have come that they have to have life and have it abundantly. In other words, it's, a, it's talking about a state of condition that starts now and then continues forever. This word life could be defined as a life of abundant joy and a measurable blessing in the presence of God forever. Eternal life is. Eternal life is a resurrected life, a life of knowing, enjoying, delighting in God, having fellowship with God, intimacy with God. That's what eternal life is. And Jesus says, if you believe, you have that now. Isn't that awesome? Joy and happiness at God that begins when you believe and continues for eternity. Jesus will actually define the idea of eternal life in John 17, 3. It says, and this is eternal life. He's going to tell us what it is. It's not babies and diapers. It's not living on an eternal couch and watching football and eating nachos for eternity. It's like there's this, these strange caricatures of what heaven is like that we are taught, isn't there? This is eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says. Knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who was sent by the Father. In other words, if your idea of believing in Jesus to have eternal life doesn't involve knowing Jesus, 
you don't believe and you don't want eternal life. The British writer and philosopher C.S. Lewis said it like this, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So these are, these are just simultaneously talking about this. Jesus is talking about eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus, and it's joy, infinite joy, peace, blessing. And those are the same, right? God is a source of joy and happiness and peace and blessing. So you want joy and peace and, and blessing? You want God. You want God? You want joy and peace and blessing. That's how it works. And you believe in Jesus, you, you have that. Friends, I think this believing in Jesus means that means a lot more than simply thinking that he exists. Believing in Jesus is not wanting to be spared so that you can avoid hell and, and then you live no differently than you did before you believed in Jesus. John does not have in mind here a type of belief in Jesus where people treat Jesus as maybe your parents' financial advisor. You're really only going to talk with him after death, right? Believing in Jesus here does not mean that you believe in Jesus as your mechanic, the car mechanic. You only come to him when there's problems. You don't believe in Jesus like you believe in a political figure. You trust in him just to make your life a little better. Hope he's going to fix the system. You believe in Jesus to get Jesus, to get God. You know that outside of Jesus, there's no life, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no satisfaction. You want to receive that now and you pray and hope and you long for that eternal time of getting to do that and know that and be with him forever. That's what eternal life means. I was struck by that this week. I don't know if I've been taught or I just talk with others. It, it seems like so many just believe that belief is simply a nugget of facts. They simply believe that, that Jesus is some sort of savior and he's not everything. He's not master. Friends, I think John shows us in this passage how we naturally all resist to the truth in this passage as well. This is an easier one. When you answer that question, question three. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. In our natural state, we love darkness. We are not like flies and bugs and insects who are attracted to the light. Thankfully, we don't get zapped forever. But apart from being clothed in Christ's righteousness, we couldn't get near the holiness of God because we would be zapped just like those bugs. But Sorry, that was a bad illustration. <laughs> in our natural state, we disbelieve. We love darkness. The man who started the Reformation from the Roman Catholic Church, a guy named Martin Luther, stated that all of our sin fundamentally boils down to unbelief. So we love darkness. We don't naturally believe that Jesus is all we need or all we want. We don't naturally believe that there's life in him. We hate God. We hate Jesus and his word. It's truth because it exposes us. That's what John says. We're afraid of being exposed. It seems to be that the unbelief is at the core of our sin, and this unbelief bursts fear and pride and guilt and shame. The Amplified Bible says John 3.20 like this, For every wrongdoer hates the light. It does not come to the light, but shrinks from it for fear that his sinful, worthless activities will be exposed and condemned. So whether it's fear or guilt or shame from this, we seek to, in our pride, to clothe ourselves, to cover ourselves up. 
We love our darkness. We stay in our darkness. We're afraid of being exposed. So we seek to make ourselves good to cover it up. Or for fear of taking control, we believe that we need to be in control or we we will be exposed. Or we're beat down in our fear and our guilt. We seek to escape and cope and numb and hide. Friends, the tragedy of John 3.20 is not that wicked sinners can't come to the light. The tragedy is they don't want to. This is why hell and God's wrath is often described in the Bible as, as giving people what they want. They want darkness. They don't want light. Hell is God simply allowing them to be what they want and do what they want forever. They love darkness. People don't come to Jesus not because he won't forgive them, but because they love their sin more than Jesus. John 3, 3, 16 through 21 presents the crux is belief. Natural state, we don't believe. I've seen many who naturally resist this claim by believing the world is not in fact condemned. I think we looked at that statistic last week, that even among evangelicals, people who say they believe in the Christian faith, most think that people are good. 51%, it was something like more of the majority, believe that we're naturally good people. If you look at surveys, uh, there's an overwhelming majority of Americans believe in heaven and hell and most think that they're going to heaven because they volunteer or they've been a good person, they pay their taxes, they vote for the right candidate, they try to treat others as, as they would want to be treated. John's saying if you cling to anything else on the basis of reason to be made right with God, the writers of the Bible would say you don't understand the gospel. You don't believe it. I've been thinking about this passage all this week, and I, and I think not only for those, for our natural state before Christ, we, we, we struggle with this belief, but even after belief, we struggle with belief, don't we? There's a sense in which I believe John 3, 16 with all my heart. I believe this passage, 16 to 21, I'm there. But there's a real sense in which I don't believe it. I don't always think that in Jesus is there this eternal life. So I look to other things or other people. I look to my own right standing with God. My, my worth, my happiness, my joy is, is based on what I do or how will I perform. Like I was mentioning earlier, even in the preaching of the gospel, I can not believe the gospel functionally. British pastor uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. To make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I've explained the way of Christ to somebody, I, I say, now, are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And they hesitate. And I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to be a Christian. At once I know that I have been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'll be good enough. But it is a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that, saying, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not good enough, you're denying God, you're denying the gospel, you're denying the very essence of the faith, and you will never be happy. You think you're better at times, and then again, you will find that you're not at, at, as good at other times than you thought you were. You will be up and down forever. How can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It doesn't matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. He would ask people, are you a Christian? And if they said, I'm trying, he would say, you don't get it. The Christian faith is not about trying. It's about trusting. 
whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. You don't receive eternal life after proving yourself. It's not about what you get or trying to avoid bad things. It's by faith, belief, trust, faith alone. It seems that both professing Christians and non-Christians believe, and with unbelievers, they naturally resist this in the way of that unbelief. It's the root of it. As we look at how is Jesus accomplished it, how is he the hero, the beauty of the gospel, the scandalous part about grace is that all the work has been accomplished. Jesus has done it. It's good news to hear that God loves the world and he has a posture and stands towards the world that he desires all that should be saved. But it's better news to hear that he has accomplished it. It's not just as if God loved you and now you have to clean yourself up and make yourself right for him. I just imagine that you, let's just say that, that imagine with me, if you have an imagination, pretend with me that you are a king. You, have a, you are a good king. People, you provide for your serfs and your uh, peasants. Is that the word I'm looking for? Anyways, subjects. Thank you, Will. Sorry. I knew it started with an S and it wasn't serfs, but it wasn't peasants. <laughs> You're a good king. You give your subjects all that they need, and yet they hate you. They profane you. They constantly complain about your good rule, about your kind provision. Even though that you have given them everything they need, they, they hate you, they treat you as an enemy, they're evil people. You have a son, an only son that you love. And you come and tell your son, son, I, I want you to go die for these people that hate me. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus coming as the only son came not only to give us everlasting life, but to take away the condemnation. We're not only dead, friends, we're guilty. We don't just need life, we need forgiveness. And in Jesus, there's both. Jesus came to be the perfect substitute, the, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God. He came as the righteousness of God, and on the cross, he takes this condemnation, this wrath that was on the people of God, his people. He takes that upon himself, and he clothes them with his righteousness. So that anyone who believes in that moment can be forgiven, not because of anything that they've done, but because of what Christ has done. It's an alien righteousness, Martin Luther said. It's outside of themselves. They're being clothed in it. And Jesus on the cross got what they deserved, condemnation. So Jesus coming, he, he not only frees and, and gets the sentence, guilty, even though he did nothing wrong. He was innocent and perfect and spotless and blameless. But guilty sinners, if they believe in him, can hear the sentence, forgiven, pardoned. And it's not a sense in which you're made clean, and now it's up to you to do the rest. When you're justified by faith, you are justified perfectly. Meaning the way that God looks at his son is the way that he now looks at you. Past sins, present sins, future sins. Forgiven, atoned for. Jesus not only forgives us, but he gives us life. Through his death on the cross, he, he allowed the way for us to be forgiven. But through his resurrection from the dead, he proved himself to be the victor over death. 
And as he rose from the again, he, he sent his spirit to enliven his people, to cause them to be born again. So that not only they are forgiven, they have new life, obedience and power and this enabling presence to love God and want to obey him and follow him and be transformed more and more into his image. Jesus has done that. Not only were you dead, you were guilty. And because of Jesus, you have been forgiven and given life. That's good news, isn't it? We see that through belief. Through belief. Do you believe this, my friends? Is your life marked by this sense of joy and life and blessing? Do you realize what you have in Christ? Does your life reflect this joy? Do you think about this often? This is why, friends, I think that John 3.16 is not only something that you believe once and are saved, but you need to continually to believe it. Friends, Jesus' accomplishment doesn't just empower us for a one-time belief. We're in need of this continual reminder. You think that John 3.16 is just for new Christians or baby Christians, or that's just something that children learn in, in kids' ministry. I mean, I pray that we never move on from this reality, right? Never move on from needing to think that we need to believe in Jesus. That's how we grow as Christians, moving deeper into belief. I'm prone to be robbed of experiencing this eternal life functionally because I don't, believe, I don't live as if I believe it. I fall into a functional kind of irreligion where there's no kind of God and I think happiness and life and purpose is found outside of him. Or I fall into a sense of religion where I think it's all about what I do and what I've done that, that leads to this right standing with God. We're constantly in need of returning to the gospel, returning to ponder, pondering, considering, marveling the work of Jesus on the cross. What does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? All that who he is and all that he has done. If you don't think you're in need of continual empowering and change by Jesus accomplished for, for obedience, for growth and godliness as grace, I would say your life might be marked by a very much sense of pride. Friends, one of the reasons that we look at these questions in our outlines the way that we do every week in the sermon and, and highlighting the personal work of Jesus and from looking at the personal work of Jesus, that moves us into obedience. We look at that question five is because we think that change happens not from a sermon saying, this is what the Bible says, now do it. Go do it. That's the truth, but is that the whole truth? I don't think we do that by appealing to a sense of pride that we so naturally have. Like we think we can do this on our own. Or it lays this burden on someone that crushes them that they, never, they realize they can never do this. The way to change is to come continually back to the gospel. We're changed from the inside out. The discipline of setting your heart before the grace of God through the preaching of God's word, gathering with his people, the, the meditation and memorization of, of the scriptures, the praying... We are in continual need of, of heart change. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I've realized that I'm more prideful and sinful than I think I am. I struggle with a sense of failure and shame and guilt when I, I don't perform the way I think I should. My heart is so hard and prideful and unbelieving that, like I said, I even preach about grace and the gospel on Sunday morning, and by Sunday evening, I'm in despair. The core problem is my unbelief. Therefore, the way to grow is not just believing John 3.16 once. It's not just some sort of elementary step in the staircase of growth. It's the way that we make all progress by moving deeper into it. Consider this. Why, when you're stressed and anxious, 
do you turn to things outside of, of Jesus? Why do you numb your emotional pain and withdraw to YouTube and plunge into the ocean of entertainment online? You believe entertainment is more satisfying than Jesus. Why are you not honest with others about your weaknesses and you, you can't think of the last time you confessed your sin to someone? It's because you think it's by your goodness and cleaning up the outside that you find acceptance. You can't let others see your stink and your weakness and your sin because that's what your worth and your identity and your, your value is wrapped up in. Friends, the reason we sin is because we don't believe. Therefore, every day is a battle to believe the gospel. Every moment is a battle to believe the gospel, to believe and receive. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you believe perfectly. It doesn't mean you never sin. It, it, it means that you begin a trajectory of belief, that by the grace of God, you will move deeper into it to be transformed. Tim Keller said it like this, and this is how I, I wanted to wrap up the sermon. To be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Friends, there is eternal life for those who believe. This is offered by faith. It is received by faith. Look to Jesus for life and peace and joy. It's not found in anything else. Believe simply that it's found in him. Receive Jesus for who he is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray somehow that by your spirit, by your work, by your power, by your divine aid, that we'll leave here this morning not thinking that John 3.16 is, is just a verse that you learned once in Sunday school or it's for our kids. It's elementary. But Father, we would see the glories and the complexities and the depths and the grace that is found here. Father, forgive me, forgive us for thinking that we can find life in anything outside of you. Help us to believe the gospel, Father, when, when people belittle us and slander us. When our wife in our perception, says something harsh or mean to us. Help us to believe, Father, in those moments, in the day-to-day -day moments, that, that we have all that we need in Jesus. That my reputation or, or how well other people think about me, that's not my life. Jesus is my life. Father, help us even in those moments where we are cut down, we experience pain and suffering, to, to realize that that might be a grace of God that is calling us deeper into this belief assuring us that, that there is nothing outside of himself. There's no happiness outside of God, and he is drawing us deeper into yourself. Father, I thank you for this church and the way that you are moving and working in our midst. I pray that we don't move on from this anthem of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, from the scriptures alone. Father, help us to be a people who encourage one another with the gospel, who listen well, who help each other believe. Father, I pray that, that somehow what was spoken this morning does just that.
as we sing together, that we might be encouraged, our faith might be strengthened, and we would love you more deeply and love others as you have loved us. Father, I pray this in your son's name. Because of Jesus, we can pray to you, we can approach you. Amen.